Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services, and also information on our forthcoming events. For now, though, let's get on with the show. My guest this week is Lottie Hawkins, founder of Earthly Biochar, a business focused on scaling biochar across the UK to offset millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide whilst providing soil health benefits to farmers and gardeners. Lottie is just 26 years old, but has already gained public recognition for her work, including a 2021 Young Innovators Award. She is passionate about biochar and its enormous potential to reduce carbon emissions and its use in everyday life. She's also one of a new breed of young and perceptive entrepreneurs who are deeply committed to planet over profit and prove this through their actions and business decisions. I was therefore intrigued to have a chat with Lottie to learn about biochar and carbon capture, as well as to hear her views on sustainability and the important role that principled entrepreneurs like herself play in the future health of our planet and the future of business in the UK. And if you don't know what biochar is, don't worry, neither did I, but you'll find out shortly. I promise you it's a fascinating subject. Hello Lottie, welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you as a guest on from two things really. I'm really interested here about your own story, your own journey to date so far. You know, you've got a really interesting background, but really interested also to hear about biochar and what biochar is as, you know, your business that you've co-founded is called Earthly uh, Biochar. So maybe for our listeners, we should start right there. Um, you've got a business that's all about biochar. So what is biochar, Lottie? So there's this really amazing story of how biochar was discovered. So I'll tell that and then I'll go into a bit more detail about exactly what it is and how it works. But rather, yeah. in actually, it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful tale. So um, back in the 1600s, lots of Spanish explorers went to the Amazon rainforest and they wrote these journals saying that there were mass civilizations all along the banks of the river um explorers went back 50 years later couldn't find anything and that kind of got forgotten through history and then in about the 80s um scientists started thinking about these old journals and decided to do some satellite imagery to see if they could find any evidence of these civilizations and actually from the images it did look like there was probably one settlements there so they went to the amazon rainforest and they started digging up the soil and they found that in specific areas the soil is really dark and black and we call that terra preta and kind of the science evolved and the hypothesis is that um the civilizations over there they were burying their green waste and their organic waste and their sewage 
um, in soil pits, so digging out the earth and filling it up and then covering it again, but then also setting it alight just before they kind of close it over. Okay. And that process would have charred all of the organic material in there. And when you leave that kind of material, today we call it biochar, when you leave it in the soil, it increases the soil fertility. So they were able to then grow loads and loads of food. And that's how they sustained their civilization because the soil's naturally out there and not fertile at all. There's too much competition. Nice. So um, that's how biochar is discovered. So the oldest piece is probably about 4,000 years old. And um, wow. yeah, it's such it a- It has some history, story. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, and kind of from a scientific perspective, it is almost pure carbon. It is made from green waste. So those two things haven't really changed over the years. It's just nowadays we make it in a really sustainable process. So the whole thing is carbon negative. So um, when we make it, we're preventing carbon dioxide from ever going back into the atmosphere. And we still use it in soil. So we sell it to gardeners and to farmers and into the agriculture and horticulture industries. And for the same reasons, to improve their soil fertility. So, yeah, that's in a nutshell. Brilliant. So a discovery in the 1600s that was forgotten about for over 200 years, yeah. 300 years, then comes to benefit civilization. And I suppose that's all about, you know, the net zero, being carbon neutral and all of those kind of things. So I suppose the first question I've got out of that is what led to your interest in biochar? Because, you know, it's it's an unusual thing to have sort of discovered or found and then to found or co-found a business in that kind yeah. of sector and industry. So when I finished my degree, I still hadn't heard of biochar. And then a series of jobs led me to Bournemouth and I moved to Bournemouth and I met my co-founder, Connor, and he was doing a product design degree at Bournemouth University. And we went along to a society meeting, a permaculture society meeting. And we met a guy called Greg and he was doing a master's and he was telling us all about biochar. It was part of his degree. And he asked Connor, because he knew he was a product designer, if he could make him a way to make biochar at home. So like a home kind of small scale biochar kiln. And that was how I first heard about it. And it evolved that Connor decided to do that as his final year project. We couldn't find any any kilns on the market to buy for gardeners. They just didn't exist. And I was working for a startup at the time in Bournemouth. And this was really exciting because there was a huge community of amateurs making their own kilns, but there wasn't a product for them. So that's actually how the company started. So Connor finished his degree and we got some interest and we applied for an accelerator program and and together that's when we formed the company wow it's interesting it's, it's like serendipity some of these things isn't it how the how you try and join the dots up and you end up somewhere that you perhaps didn't even believe yeah um, that you would be so do you produce you produce the kilns but do you, do you produce biochar on a mass basis as well or is it just the kilns that you know what is the core business for for earthly biochar so there's two sides to it. So kind of the consumer side is the kilns and biochar, but we don't make biochar on a massive scale because all the equipment available really starts at about a million pounds okay. um, if you want to do it on a big scale. So the other side of our business, which is where I sit predominantly, is in doing research. So we're designing equipment so that we can make it for about £100,000, not a million pounds. Um, so we're actually doing a lot of R&D and we also have a lot of trials of using biochar in other markets. So we're trying to put it into fashion, construction, 
like 3D printing. So we're trying to break the mold and not just look at soil, but innovate in other sectors. So just again, for me, as much as our listeners, actually, because I'm really intrigued now, <laughs> is how do you use biochar in different environments? And I can see how you can use it in soil and how that, you know, kind of fertilizes the soil and makes it more productive. But how do you use biochar in other environments? So it's actually such an amazing material. It's almost pure carbon and it's very conductive and it's very insulating. Um, and also it can be very good at, it's a very good filter. So in lots of processes, we use activated carbon to clean up wastewater. Biochar can do the same job, but it's far more sustainable. So that's like one, one way of using it. Uh, like I said, it's a great conductor. So it's being used in electronics and 3D printing. Um, all, it's all still like kind of research-based work. There's nothing really on the market yet, but that's where we sit. And then um, it can be used to improve the strength of concrete, of roads. Um, just as a material alone, carbon is so, it's such an amazing element at the end of the day. And um, you can make it from waste and at the same time be capturing carbon. So yeah, that's in a nutshell how it works. <laughs> yeah. So that must make the business really interesting, yet really challenging. Because on one side, you've got this commercial arm which is selling the kilns and you know and, and getting you know gardeners and consumers to use it as a product and buy the kiln but on the other side you're and I can see your face come alive as, as we talk about this you know there is this kind of R&D there's where we could take it but no revenue stream attached to that other than any of grants that you can receive to pursue the research so doesn't that make the business quite challenging to operate day to day? Yes and no. So I was explaining to a friend the other day, I love the fact that all we mainly do is innovation because you never know what the answer is. So like mm -hmm. it's really engaging, um, but it is challenging because we're constantly writing funding applications and we've been very fortunate in the last year to have won quite a bit of funding. And it's all public funding, so it's research funding. Um, and and that's what, um, because of that, we've been supported by Innovate UK. So that opens a lot of doors. And that means that they suggest other awards that we can apply for. So at the moment, the going's good. We have enough cash coming in to keep doing research. But it is worrying because if that did vanish, the revenue streams of the consumer business wouldn't be able to sustain it. No. And um, I don't pay myself anything, but I have a team. So I have to make sure that I can cover their costs. So there, there's always the balance of me doing a little bit of consulting work, like half a day a week on the side, just to make sure that I can get by yeah. and, and be there for my team. So yeah, it's difficult. It's that balancing act, isn't it? Um, but we talk about some carbon capture as well, because I would say if you're making carbon, then you're creating smoke and fumes and all of those things that pollute the atmosphere. So you know, perhaps educate me, Lottie, what is carbon capture and how does your kiln and how does the process mean that it doesn't create that pollution? Sure. So carbon capture is really important in the journey to net zero. So we have to capture carbon to make up of all of make up all the historical emissions that we have emitted as a species over the last mm. few centuries. And there's many ways of doing it. So there is some types which literally suck carbon dioxide out of the air and they turn it into like solid forms of like solid batons of carbon that's called direct air capture but what we do is we take all of the waste biomass in the environment and we make that into solid carbon because if we didn't do that what would happen is as food waste breaks down or green waste 
um, all of the carbon in the plant material will eventually be released back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So we intercept that cycle and to actually turn it from a biodegradable form of carbon to an inert form, which means it can't break down, you have to heat it to about 600 degrees C. And the process now, which is far more sustainable than what people used to do uh, like 50 years ago, is there's kilns which, and this is what ours does, which means that as you're heating up the waste material, all of the elements that are being driven off as a gas, they're flammable. And rather than releasing them up into the atmosphere, because that'd be really bad for the environment, mm. we divert it back into the combustion chamber. Chamber, So it kind of, it's self-perpetuating. Okay. So you only need a small amount of energy at the start to get it up to 600 degrees, but then it's continuous. So it keeps running. Um, you have to turn it off like once a week to clean it and then set it up again. But at the end of the day, what happens is you end up releasing about 50% of the carbon that was in the biomass through combustion, through fueling the fire. But the 50% that's left behind is biochar and that will never go back up into the atmosphere and it will be safely stored for hundreds to thousands of years. So overall, we're 50% carbon negative. Okay, fantastic. Get it now. Understand it a bit better. Well, I, I kind of get it. <laughs> but it's a great explanation. And, and, and I, I can see that. I suppose, you know, when you were doing your degree, did you ever see yourself as being somebody that was going to start their own business and was going to do something different? I think so. Although I, it wasn't planned. So I when I did my degree at Newcastle, and there was a, there's a really cool kind of organization that's worldwide called Enactus, and that enables students to get funding from large corporates to set up social enterprises to help either the environment or people. And I did that at university for a few years. So that means that I was able to get a feel for what it's like to work in kind of a startup environment that's actually got a mission and, and creates a positive impact. So I think that definitely influenced. Um, yeah, it definitely influenced my journey. And I'm I don't know. I've never really enjoyed working for other people. So I think also that partially influenced it as well. I really like doing things my way and like thinking outside the box. And when I, I did have a job when I graduated for about a year and I really struggled with doing things the way they've been done because mm -hmm. that's just the way they've been done. And, and I couldn't get my head around that. So, yeah, I did go off on my own fairly soon after graduating. I suppose that is the founder entrepreneurial mindset, isn't it? We all, or, you know, business leaders generally will find it hard to do a day-to-day nine-to-five job. We like to think differently and um, we like not to be controlled, I suppose, and, and, and let our kind of creative spirit and imagination flow. And clearly uh, that's what's within you. And I suppose you talked there about social enterprise. You talked about having a mission and a purpose, those kind of things. Do you think the new generation of business owners, leaders, entrepreneurs do differ from previous generations, specifically in their focus on social responsibility and perhaps using profit for good? Yes, definitely. I think I'm probably fortunate to, in some ways to have grown up when I did, but especially people younger than me, so I'm 26. Um, they've grown up in an era where there's a huge urgency to mitigate climate change and to adapt to it as well, because it's inevitable now. And yeah. what we're the phase we're in now is we're trying to prevent the worst of it. So they've grown up with that rhetoric around them. And so they have no other choice. 
So they're creating solutions because it's their future. And I think it's very different from the mindset of people probably 30, 40 years ago, because that wasn't such a, it wasn't such a strong message in the kind of public domain. And yeah. also there is definitely a group of people who I personally really align with, which believe like, what is the point of money on a dead planet? There is no point to it. So you might as well actually do as much as you can to keep life going, right? And, and to help other people and the planet. So rather than putting profit first, it's not gonna help you in 40, 50 years if we don't do anything to mitigate climate change. But there's that challenge, isn't it? And you've spoken about it, is that money does is needed, isn't it? Because, you know, you have to pay your team. You can decide that you want, you can live a sort of cautious, frivolous, you know, lifestyle and, and exist on very little, but you've still got to develop a team and you've still got to pay for resources and that becomes, do, do you find that um, with that strong value set that you've got, Lottie, you know, a conflict in your head at times that actually, you know, you've got to apply for grants, the commercial business has to work because otherwise you can't do the social good. You can't have that social responsibility. Yeah, it is a conflict and it, it took me a while to come to terms with it. So when the company start, started, I was really excited to potentially make it a charity. But then I spoke to people that I knew who were very high up in quite big charities and they said it's the worst idea because if you're not driving to make profit, then you can potentially start losing sight of success and, and you can become lazy and incompetent. And and actually, I don't think it's um, a surprise. Most people have heard charities aren't really run in the best way they possibly could be. So that was a learning curve. And then I decided that actually, if we if we are growing and scaling and becoming more profitable, we can reinvest profits back into our mission and create more impact. So that's when my mindset changed. And now we still have like a kind of a baseline value, which is if we can reduce our profits, but have a bigger impact, that's what we'll always choose to do rather than being mm -hmm. like some businesses, which might always look to reduce costs wherever they can and in some places especially in supply chains by doing that and we could do that as well like we could make our kilns in china but we would be having a terrible impact on the planet so we make them in wales and they're handmade and every part's made in the uk that means our profit margins are much smaller but we have a better impact at the end of the day so there's a balance about it but i totally agree now that we are profitable and we are scaling it's great because i can put more money into the research so i'm not a hater of profit i just think we need to be careful about where we think we're going and what we use it for but that's a realistic view of profit and money then isn't it is that you know and i think that's maybe that what has changed you it's interesting i hadn't really thought about it but you mentioned charities and maybe 20 years ago those that had a sense of social responsibility and doing things were good entered the charitable sector whereas now what we're seeing is a generation of you know entrepreneurial mindsetted people that are saying actually no what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a commercial enterprise, but I'm going to do it with a view to doing it for good and yeah. for a purpose, whatever that purpose may be. And, and maybe that is, the, you know, that's the shift, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that is really interesting. I suppose you mentioned you're 26. So, re you know, relatively still young, had success today. You're on a journey. How do you think, you know, going on this journey that you've had, has affected you in terms of your personal life and your other ambitions that you'd have in life? Has it caused challenges? 
Yes and no. So I remember when I um, first decided to work for myself and my parents were very supportive, but also panicking because it's, you know, not a stable income. Um, <laughs> but now they're fine three years down the line and, and they trust I haven't had to turn to them asking them for money yet. So it's all been going well. But I think the challenge mainly is that my friends that are my age, they've kind of gone up the career ladder. So they're doing things now which I can't do, like buying houses and, and settling mm. down. And it was never really a dream of mine either. But I do feel the sting when they want to go out and have a big weekend. And what they spend in a big weekend, I try and make last a month. So <laughs> it start, that's what hurts. Um, yeah. But I love what I do. I wouldn't change it. I also think, fortunately, being an entrepreneur and having to be frivolous and having to take risks, it teaches you freedom and, and, and also it builds your confidence. So I think in some ways, I'm a bigger risk taker and more confident than those who, or those of my friends who have got very stable jobs, um, kind of do the same thing day in, day out. They, they wouldn't take as many risks that I do. So mm. it's a double-edged sword. I think it brings great things, but also it gives you a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it just sets you apart, I suppose. It, it then becomes clear that you're different, isn't it? And in some yeah. way, shape or form. And that's because you want to be different. But there's times when we all want to, um, comply is the wrong word, but we want to be with our peers and in that same environment and be on on a level footing. But you, we all choose different paths, don't we? And actually, yeah. I, I'm just intrigued to start that path early, the effect it's had, because, you know, most people, me included, you know, I've kind of done the kind of professional career, you know, worked in a corporate, but and it was age 29, 30 that I said, right, enough, I've got a bit of security now, I can go and do what I want to do. And I think that's probably more the standard journey. And what I was really intrigued about you, Lottie, is actually, it's effectively, you know, one year employed, but straight out of uni with a purpose, here's an opportunity and off I go. And, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a different thing in a different environment, isn't it? So um... Yeah, and I think that um, you were saying about how you had the stability, which enabled you to kind of go off and, and do it a bit later in life. Um, I actually always saw the potential of having starting a career and wanting to grow that as maybe a restriction. So mm. at the moment, I like the fact that I'm pretty much like commitment free. Um, so I don't have to pay a mortgage. I'm not in a long term rental position. Um, I, I, if all shit hit the fan, I could go home to my parents with a load of suitcases. And, yeah. and because of that, it means that I can probably be slightly more ambitious with what I do. And I, and I did consider the career route. Um, but I kind of saw it as like probably like a similar to what you said, like a eight to 10 year commitment before I could do this. Mm. And um, I didn't feel like I wanted to wait that long. So no, good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's commitment and it's spirit, which is two great qualities to have. I suppose now understanding a bit more about earthly biochar and what biochar is, and where you sit in the market, are you worried that, you know, some big industrial organization conglomerate will come along and see the opportunity and and invest heavily and sort of squeeze you and others that are in this kind of founding stage of biochar out of the market? Is that a risk that you've got? Yeah, it's a constant threat. Um, and it would be naive not to, to recognize it, to be honest. Um, when we first started in our first year, we were very squashable. Um, that's the way I like to put it. Squashable, um, I like that word. <laughs> um, but now, because, so I'm doing a PhD alongside running the company. And so we're actually 
producing research and, and inventing novel things and, and protecting them. So now that we have that, those work streams um, and those like patent pending applications, we're less squashable. Um, and that's why we innovate into other markets. So if, if we weren't doing that, I think someone could do a cookie cutter approach and just copy us. But because we are, um, we're quite secretive about the inventions that we come up with and the markets we go into, and then we protect them. So that enables us to have a bit of an armor. Um, and then also we have been working really hard to get our brand name out there. So we started getting recognized in regional and national media and the RHS, which is like a huge kind of gardening body, they started supporting us too. So if that did happen, I would feel quite strongly that I probably could make enough of a fuss about it, that they mm. might decide to back down and work with us rather than squash us. It's interesting, isn't it? That patent approach, though, obtaining patents isn't a, I mean, it's a huge financial investment, isn't it, to do that and to maintain them. And it's a huge time commitment, but I can understand that's clearly the best thing you can do right now to protect your position and yourselves and, and give some value to the business going forward. But how have you found that experience? Because isn't it one that's tied up in red tape? Um, we've had, so part of our Innovate UK funding included specialist support. So we've had, we've been really fortunate to have an IP, IP lawyer who's worked with us over the last 12 months. Um, and there are some fees associated with it, but there's also grants available through the government to help match fund the fees. So there, there are vehicles for founders and startups like ours to access kind of patent applications. But it the hardest thing actually is working out if something is patentable because mm. there's so many patents out there and, and creating something new and inventive is really difficult. So that's probably the hardest part. Once you've got that, the rest is a walk in the park. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's the early bit that's difficult. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Definitely. And do you see yourself ever being acquired by a sort of bigger company that demonstrates your values? Or is your is the journey you're on, Lottie, to develop earthly biochar into a larger entity that has this social purpose? Yeah, I don't like the idea of being acquired. Um, I think I'd be worried that it would lose uh, it's moral compass, the company, if that happened. Um, I prefer the idea of being a much larger entity and kind of actually one of the goals of the company is to scale biochar adoption. And the biggest barrier to that at the moment is the lack of understanding and awareness. So I would love to see in kind of five, 10 years time, Earthy Biochar to be this huge uh, co company that's all about educating people um, and enabling them to make their own biochar or to choose products that contain it because they know that it's better for the planet. And I'll be yeah. worried that if we were acquired, those kind of like soft goals, the whole like education thing, wouldn't be important anymore to such a big conglomerate that might think, actually, no, we just need to keep scaling, keep making those profit margins big. And they might not think so much about the other social goals that we have. So I don't like, that's why I don't like the idea of being acquired at the moment. Yeah, no, I can understand that, you know, an acquirer is going to potentially just grab your patents, aren't they, run with them, mm. turn them into com commercial value. It becomes about the money and, as you say, that greater purpose that you have, which clearly is coming across in this conversation, dissipates. But you've also got a team now, you've got a team that's building that's going to continue to grow. How, have you, how do you share yours and your co-founders' kind of ambitions for the business? And that you talk about moral compass, that kind of 
I talk about essence, spirit and beliefs of a business, but you know, it's, just, it's easy when you're a very small team, isn't it? Or when you're founding the business, because that moral compass is there. It's set in the right direction and off you go. But as you grow, other people's influences, other people's opinions come in, you know, you're, you can spend less time with the team because you're doing other things. And so what have you done to make sure that this strong sense of social responsibility and moral compass stays within the business? Lottie. So we, um, at the moment, we're a team of four, but in about a month's time, the idea is that we're a team of eight. So we're recruiting for four more people. And um, at, the, at, at present, it's actually quite easy, like you said, to make sure that everyone's on the same page because we have kind of weekly stand-up meetings with everyone and, and we will turn up and, and we discuss how we're going. And um, I had a really, really great coach last year and she taught me how to reflect um, on a regular basis. So I, I still do that and I still kind of work on the business rather than in it. So kind of mm. taking a bird's eye view approach. And um, I share those reflections with the team regularly. So that helps them probably get into that mindset rather than it being focused only on what are you doing this week? How was last week? It's actually more about, you know, this quarter we wanted to hit these goals and, and this is how last month went. So it's inviting them into those discussions and being really transparent with them. Um, I did once work in a company, the one that I told you about for a year, and I wasn't part of those leadership meetings. Mm. So I never had any idea of what the whole point of what I was doing was. So I didn't want to replicate that. So now I invite them into those discussions. And because they come from different walks of life, and they have different skills, actually, that's incredibly valuable, the input that mm. they give helps us reach our goals. So that's how I do it. Reflection is really important, isn't it? You know, but when you're busy and you're founding a business and when you're leading a business finding time to reflect is easier said than done so how do you go about creating that time Lottie? so i i have to have like events in my calendar to do it otherwise i won't okay. um so yeah they're recurring monthly events to reflect on the previous month but actually i had a meeting with an advisor last week and she said you should be doing it for one morning every week so now i've got to think about how i fit that in and Doing that alongside doing a PhD, the good thing, the good thing about my PhD is it's very reflective. So that's taught me how to be even more reflective and, and it's all focused around scaling biochar adoption as well. So they're very uh, intertwined. Yeah. So in some ways, I think if I wasn't studying and being forced to submit essays, they're really reflective pieces as well. So I think that's really helpful, but it definitely comes down to discipline, just having it in my calendar making sure I do it and I keep them all in the same place. So I use Notion so I can like look back and see and I have the same template that really helps as well. So it's very structured. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's how I do it. That's great hints and tips there, isn't it? I was just wondering because some people, I mean, I, you know, will go for a run, get on a bike and just let my mind wander a little bit. But, you know, it's just. Yeah, actually, I do. So every morning I walk for about an hour. And if I haven't done that walk and I haven't had the, that time to think and the space to think, and I live by the sea down in Devon, it's amazing, like the vastness of space and, and having those streets to yourself and, and walking along the coast, it, that's incredibly reflective and meditative as well. It's just yeah. that it's funny how you mentioned that because I wouldn't have thought of that as part of my reflection, but it definitely is. And it's interesting, isn't it? And an interesting one for our listeners to think about and, and those perhaps on the early parts of their journeys is how that phd is part of your strategic thinking as well because it, it is so closely aligned 
to the business, isn't it? Particularly with the, all the research and development um, that you're playing. So where what are your hopes with, you know, we've talked about net zero, we've talked about new generation, people doing things differently. You know, it's on the government's agenda now. Um, I think you're right. I'd align with that because we have to, you know, not necessarily because governments want to, but it's now come to the point where there is no choice. Um, so what are your thoughts on where we are perhaps within the UK generally on that picture of sustainability and where you think we're going to be in five, ten years' time? Um, this is a really tricky question for me because I always want to be the optimist, but actually yeah. it's really sad I don't think we are on track enough. I think our change is still too slow. I found a really interesting fact the other day, which was that since signing the Paris Agreement, the UK government has paid four billion pounds to North Sea oil and gas companies. And that's that's just so upsetting. Why is that? That's not fair. Um, so, but at the same time, I have to be optimistic because otherwise I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. So <laughs> the um, I do believe that what will happen is it will probably be predominantly consumer led. So as people and individuals start making better choices and putting the planet first and start making noise as well and, and the continue continuation of the protests I think is really important the government will start to listen but at the moment I think our pace of change is still too slow wow it's interesting isn't it because you know the pace of change you seem to be accelerating but you would say it's more rhetoric than action would you yeah definitely it's not proactive um I think that the recent oil and gas crisis is a perfect example of that. Um, and knowing that the government's still paying companies to pollute rather than putting it into renewable energy mm. is disappointing. So, and part of me wonders, do, it might be slightly cynical, but do they really care? Is it just a, a means to get us to vote for them? Um, I feel like slightly torn with politics because Sometimes I hear um, interviews with ministers and they're inaccurate or the, I think recently um, one of the things that a minister said on Radio 4 was asked, what can people do at home um, to really make a difference? And the best thing that she could come up with was using a reusable bag at the supermarket. And I just, and I just thought, I mean, that's not the message we need to be giving to people and certainly leaders and decision makers should be far more educated than that when it comes yeah. to comes to that so I am optimistic because I trust young people and I trust consumers I'm just less um less confident in our leaders at the moment to actually make the change so yeah it, that does sound from a minister a very flippant response but I'm going to turn that question on you Lottie <laughs> so what can people at home do um, the biggest impact that people can have individually is changing their diet. So I'm plant-based and I have been for four years. And that doesn't mean everyone has to suddenly turn into a vegan and be very strict. But if we all collectively start reducing the amount of meat and dairy products and fish products that we start eating, we will see a positive impact. So that's kind of the biggest um, one thing that anyone can do. But there are loads of other things as well, just switching to an electric car, switching to a renewable energy supplier, stop buying fast fashion, start buying products that you want to keep for a lifetime rather than just get because it's trendy and then you're going to chuck it out next year. Mm -hmm. Recycling, composting, there's loads of things and there's some great resources online as well. Um, 
yeah, it's not just all about using a reusable shopper. <laughs> no, definitely not. But it, but it's about making sustainable changes, isn't it? You know, you you yeah. say about you know tr- nutrition is a great one and in a diet and nutrition, but that needs to be in a and and done in a way that's sustainable and not just done as a fad. You know, I've gone dairy free, and you know, I'd probably more for health reasons than anything else, and finding the health benefits. And then you think, well, actually, there is other benefits to that and minimize the amount of meat i eat and you know think about it when i'm doing it and locally sourced and if i am going to eat and all of those kind of stuff but this yeah to me they seem like small changes but i suppose your argument would be that if everybody makes some small changes along and incorporates other things you know thinks about use of transport and all of those kind of things into what they do in their everyday lives that's what's going to make a real difference because it's the accumulative effect isn't it yeah, absolutely. And you made a really interesting point about mentioning um, sourcing locally foods. I really do believe that. I would rather my friends eat really local meat products than buy processed vegan products that have come from America. Because that yeah. does exist. You can go into the supermarket and there isn't enough labelling at the moment. I, I would hope that we will have a traffic light system in the future where you can see how sustainable a product is. So that people can make those changes and and be and it'd be easier for them um but yeah i totally agree sourcing local um like local veg boxes local meat it's way better than buying something in a supermarket that's been flown here yeah no definitely i, I suppose that comes back you know the traffic light system would be another great example it will eventually be consumer-led wouldn't it yeah but then, yeah, we could get into a whole debate here about our media and how our media controls us, but we won't go down that route. <laughs> It'd be a little bit of a rabbit hole, maybe. Um, so I suppose as we start to you know, think about kind of your own journey, you've talked about having a coach. So obviously that's benefited you. But what's the best piece of advice you think you've had? Oh, God, that's a really hard question. I think I probably couldn't put it down to any specific piece of advice. I just think having the right people around you makes a huge difference and, and not just coaches and advisors, but also friends and family. Mm. We really believe in your vision um, and they're, they're really supportive. I think if I hadn't had that environment, so my parents are both quite entrepreneurial and that's been helpful. Um, they're always supporting me. Even if I turn up and say like the most craziest idea, it's always we'll try see what happens it's mm. never trying to talk me back down to sensible kind of realistic aims so i think having a really strong support network is so vital because about 90 percent of our funding applications get a no and that's quite common but mm. until you start that journey of trying to write funding applications you don't realize how hard it is to get rejection all the time and you have to have a great support network who say it's fine try again use the feedback and if I didn't have that, probably would have given up a lot earlier. Um, yeah. So I think support and, and the people around you are more probably far more important than any one piece of advice. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the actions and support rather than the words itself. Great response. Um, and I suppose, but that comes with sometimes you've got to make those difficult decisions to take the people that are, give a ne- negative impact on your life out of your life, haven't you? Yeah, that's very true as well. Um it's almost like you're kind of cleansing your the people around yeah. you. There definitely was that for me as well, absolutely. Um, luckily not too many, but there has been a few who have tried to push me in a more kind of conventional route. Um, 
I've had advisors actually, and this is just down to lack of education. I've had advisors who um, have really tried to make earthly biochar super profitable, like a massive profitable business. And never in any conversation was it ever about carbon capture or, or the impacts it's had uh, or, or positive impacts. So there's also like kind of, they weren't toxic or negative people. It's just that you've got to kind of be aware of what their driving motivations are mm. and, and make sure they're aligned with you. So yeah, I would agree. It's about having really supportive people, but also those people have to really get it, get why you're doing it and make sure they're on the same page. Yeah, they're aligned to you and they understand you, but you don't want, you know, yes, ladies and men around you, do you? You've got to have, have people that are prepared and think slightly differently sometimes to challenge you as well, because that's when you can make leaps forward. Yeah, definitely. My PhD supervisors are perfect examples of that. Uh, we meet on a regular basis, weekly. And the whole point of our session is that they grill me on why I believe what I believe. So it's a uh, very kind of devil's advocate. They're always trying to find pit holes in my arguments. Without those sessions, I wouldn't have breakthroughs. So I think you definitely need people like that in your life as well. Fantastic. And right now, if you're being self-analytical, what hard thing are you not doing enough of? What are you putting off right now? Um, I think I'm putting off writing. So um, a lot of my ideas and my research is done through reading and and I'm not a massive fan of writing myself, but I am I am quite good at it. But I always put it off because it requires a really like calm, peaceful state. And, and I feel like with work, it's always so busy all the time. It's hard to find that um, kind of tranquil environment to write. But if I was writing, I would probably have better breakthroughs, more ideas. So I think finding kind of peace and quiet to spend half a day a week just writing would be really, really beneficial to me. It's just that I feel like everything else comes up first and I have to answer to lots of other people before I get the time to do that. Okay, perfect. Great response. So it is the Evolve to Succeed uh, podcast. I always end with the same question. Um, so what does success mean to you? That's a really great question. To me, it means that within my lifetime, we've turned all of the green waste in the UK into biochar. So that would equate to approximately 6 million tonnes of CO2 being captured on a yearly basis. It would make a huge difference. Um, and it would require complete process change in the, in the whole UK infrastructure. But that's the goal that I'm working towards. So that that is what success means to me. Very clear definition there, Lottie. Thank you for being an incredible guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. I've loved having the conversation with you, finding out about your own journey, and you've been brutally honest about that, but also about biochar and some of your thoughts and ideas on sustainability and carbon capture. It's been great for me to be better educated as a result of this conversation. Thank you, Lottie. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvemembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.